Shalom, shalom, holy friends. I'm so happy to see you all. Thank you for being here. And uh, Juan, I know you're normally a listener from afar, so it's nice to have you in the room with us. <laughs> um, so thank you so much. And um, uh, we are here on our kindness series, exploring chesed, how do we build a more kind world? a more kind world, a more gentle world, a more compassionate world. And we have looked at various facets of humans engaging with humans, um, humans in the abstract and humans in the flesh. And last session, we looked at humans' relationship to the earth. And before we return to humans, today we're going to look at non-human animals, right? Are, are humans animals? Are we animals? Well, that's kind of a complicated question, right? A biologist would most certainly say yes, right? The fact that we even talk about transplants from pigs into humans means we're animals, right? Um, and we are relatively predictable in terms of our behavioral patterns and uh, our physiology in many ways. And yet, spiritually, are we animals? Well, it's not so clear. In Kabbalah, animals do have souls, but a, a lower degree of soul than humans have. So that question I get every year, Rabbi, is my dog going to heaven? I need to tell my kid, <laughs> my dog who died, are they going to heaven? The short answer is yes, there is a soul in animals. Um, so um, we are going to look here today at Hemla Labale Chaim, displaying compassion for animals. Too much Plato. <laughs> yeah, yes, I. Um, we can move beyond Platonism and the notion that there is innate knowledge, innate um innate wisdom, innate souls, and uh, into the, the realm of empiricism, that what we learn is learned through the senses, not through an innate sense of knowing. However, animals, do animals learn through empiricism or do animals learn through an innate sense of knowing? Um, that's kind of an, Plato might, um, Plato might speak more to animals than humans. Okay, friends, here's a question for you. Here's a question, a poll question for you today. On the relationship in, between humans and non-human animals, option one, humans and non-human animals are more or less the same. Option two, humans and non-human animals have very strong similarities, but a few major differences. Option three, humans and non-human animals are fundamentally different and cannot really be compared at all. Let's see your vote here. How are you going to vote here? Um, I, oh, that was quick. Okay, so sorry if you missed that. <laughs> that was a quick turnaround, but it probably, hopefully enough for everyone. Um, nobody here thinks, or at least who voted, that humans and non-human animals are more or less the same. 86% think um, there are very strong similarities, but some major differences. And 14% are arguing that we are fundamentally different. Okay, friends, here we go. Being compassionate to animals ought to be the easiest and most obvious form of kindness. I have often argued that a five-year-old um, or three-year-old can more easily learn compassion towards a dog than towards their sibling. 
they might terrorize their sibling in a way that they might not do for their dog. <laughs> Young children um, can often show this kind of empathy towards a pet before other children. Few want to act cruelly to their dog and cat. Um, I'm sure there are kids out there that terrorize pets, um, but I don't see that so often. Many enjoy riding and even brushing horses in addition to petting dogs and cats. We see an animal's vulnerability and we naturally want to protect it. We also know so well that our ecosystem is complex and how all life is interdependent. Indeed, it seems most probable that an act of cruelty toward animals found in China's wet market was what kicked off the COVID pandemic, right? I'm gonna presume for a moment, we don't all, a few of us engage in the conspiracy theories um, that are involved in the origins and embrace the most commonly held scientific notion that it emerged out of the China's wet market, out of animal cruelty. There are countless sources that teach us to be compassionate towards animals. The Torah instructs us, do not muzzle your ox when it is treading. On this verse, Rabbi Aaron of Barcelona teaches that this mitzvah is about kindness to animals. Here's what he writes over here in the Sefer Achinuch. One may not prevent an animal from eating that upon which it is working at the time of its work. The root of this precept is to teach ourselves to develop beautiful souls, to choose fairness, and to adhere to it, and to pursue loving kindness and mercy. By accustoming ourselves to being compassionate, even to animals which are really only created for our usage, he argues, our soul becomes habituated to treat human beings well and to protect them, to compensate them for any good that they do, and to satisfy them with whatever they desire. So while this moral point is quite important, we can still challenge the assumption he makes that animals are really only created for our usage. Some of us may believe that, some of us may not. Are humans the pinnacle of all existence and all other life merely here for our use, seemingly including not only our appetites, but also our fun or desires, right? Why is Why does a dog exist? That dog looking at us in that picture there, does that dog exist? Go, hold on, hold on, I wanna look at the, that dog's eyes for another moment. Does that little dog there exist because it gives us pleasure to pet her? Because it gives us pleasure to take her for a walk? Because it gives us pleasure to throw him a ball? Or does that dog exist for her own sake? For his own sake, right? That's an interesting question. Another Torah verse teaches us, if you see your enemy's donkey overburdened with a heavy load, and you might hesitate to help, instead you shall certainly help him unload. Some interpret this verse to be about helping our enemy, right? You should even help your enemy, not only someone you like, right? But others suggest that the focus is that it's so important to help an animal, even when it's the animal of your enemy, right? Um, in ancient warfare, well, I guess in modern warfare as well, um, uh, cruelty is often shown towards animals in addition to um, the enemy, right? And other times it's not. Why? Because it's an asset. Part of the spoils in war is you capture the women and you capture the cattle and um, you kill the men, right? And the children are a little more complicated. What you do with the children? Do you do you adopt those orphans and bring them in, 
do you kill them? Do you just leave them? What, what do you do with children? Because they're not really an asset unless you turn them into child laborers or slaves. The Talmudic rabbis suggest that the prohibition to cause pain to animals is doraita, doraita meaning of biblical origin. And they debate which of the many verses is the primary verse in which to root this Torah imperative, right? Got it? So they already want to say that causing pain to animals is biblical, not rabbinic. And then they debate which verse to attach it to because there are so many. For Rashi, it is the verse just quoted above that is the basis for the biblical prohibition around um, around this uh, enemy's donkey and, 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 and helping with the burden. For Rambam, for Rambam, Maimonides, however, he cites the story of Bilam. Remember the story of Bilam, where he whips his donkey as the basis for the biblical prohibition, right? And he gets chastised by the angel. Uh, well, not by the angel, by the donkey, um, but in a sense by the angel as well, because of kind of that revelation that kind of emerges there. Um, but uh, that he that the the donkey, not Bilam himself, can see this angel, right? So over there. Um, the Rambam wants to root this this prohibition of of um, It is instructive to note that the rabbis did not allow killing animals. Excuse me, did allow killing animals when it is for tzorech adam, human need, right? Do the animal? Do the rabbis allow for eating meat? Of course, you can kill an animal not for fun, not for hunting, not because you think it's a fun game. Um, but because you need the food. At the same time, we're all familiar with the great sensitivity that must be taken regarding how an animal is slaughtered. Furthermore, the Shulchan Aruch goes as far as taking an animal's mental state into account when discussing what constitutes a trefa, i.e. an animal that would have died of its own accord due to illness or disease. Here's what the Shulchan Aruch teaches. If the animal has become scared by a person, to the point that its lungs have completely constricted. For example, it witnessed another animal being slaughtered or something similar. The animal's a trefa. You may recall the mitzvah of, um, of Shiluach Aken, that yes, you may take eggs to eat, but you need to shoo the mother bird away, right? Um, because there's a sense that the mother bird will have some pain in taking her eggs. And so, yes, you may take them, but you need to send her away first so she not kind of witness this. It is perhaps remarkable to note that Rav Yosef Karo, who we just taught, understood that an animal being scared can lead to its lungs being constricted to the point that its physical well-being, even its life, is at stake. Similarly, the Pitchei Tshuva writes, the practice of people with chickens in hand standing around the butcher while he is slaughtering so that they can be the next in line is not correct. This is especially true on Erev Yom Kippur, when the butcher is slaughtering the chickens of Kaparot, an atonement ritual with mystical significance. This holding the chickens in a way that they can see the others being slaughtered is not right, since it constitutes Sar Chaim, cruelty to animals. Now, I want to make clear, I'm in no way comparing, I want to be totally clear, comparing... Um, the Holocaust to animal slaughter in any way, but I just want to kind of acknowledge that that part of the the suffering that emerges in the Shoah is not only your own your own murder, your own suffering, 
but witnessing the cruelty in front of you. When you are standing in a line in the crematoria, right? When you are standing in a line to the gas chambers, when you witness your child or your rabbi or your wife killed, right? There's an extra degree of mental anguish, of torture, of suffering, which is obvious to us that, that emerges from that. And so once again, no comparison um, uh, of that level of, of human genocide to this. However, um, I think part of what the Pit Chetuba is saying here, based upon our human understanding, that your suffering connected to co collective suffering um, and what it means to witness that, um, so too he extends to animals in the sense that, yes, an animal lives a good life and then is quickly slaughtered. That is a very different form of suffering than being in a slaughter line where you see your mother, your father, your brother and sister, your fellow chickens being killed, not only because you may care about them, we don't know about how much they care about each other. There are interesting scientific studies about that. But even bracketing, if they hold empathy, um, th the fact that they can see that's their fate coming up, right? There's an extra level of, of kind of suffering that emerges. So regarding this minhag, this custom of kaparot, which we just mentioned, Many contemporary rabbis and community leaders have spoken out against the practice itself, that before Yom Kippur, we should uh, swing the chicken above our heads and then, and then kill it um, out in the streets. And several resolutions have been written banning it, as it often involves Sarbalei Chaim, um, the prohibition of pain to animals. For Rambam, the Torah's prohibitions are here to improve our character, right? What is this about for the Rambam? Well, it's not exactly about the pain of the animal. It's really about who are we as humans? What midot, what character traits do we have? He writes over here in his Mor Nebuchim, this law comes to perfect us in that we should not behave cruelly and that we should not cause unjustified senseless pain. Slaughtering should not be done cruelly, nor is hunting for sport permitted. So if we see a child who's kind of torturing a fish, right? Am I, am I worried about the fish or am I worried about who my child is becoming? Right. I remember I went to college at the University of Texas in Austin. And in one of my first weeks in Texas, I walked into a dorm room where I witnessed the horror of uh, I don't even know what they call it. Maybe one of y'all know of uh, fish, fish, uh, aggressive fish um, killing, where basically they would take fish that ate fish and put them into a tank to see which one would win the fight and, and kill the other one. And like brutal, you know, and now some people might not, you know, be so opposed to that. They might enjoy bullfights. Um, they might enjoy fishing. Um, uh, they might enjoy uh, dog, dog fights where dogs essentially kill each other. Um, but, you know, I, I, um, I, I, I struggled being in that room. Um, and, um, and, um, but is that, and for me, that really was like feeling the pain of the fish in there. But for the Rambam, this is about who we are as people. Do we find pleasure in suffering or not? The concern for the welfare of animals is not only about limiting suffering, but also about proactively showing kindness. The Talmud teaches we should feed our animals before ourselves. Here's what it says over here in the Talmud. Rav Yehuda said in the name of Rav, it is forbidden for a person to eat before they give food to their animals. This is learned from the order of the verse found in the Shema. And I, it says in the Shema, and I will give grass in your fields for your animals 
And only then the verse goes on to say, and you will eat and be satisfied, right? As we say in Birkat HaMazon as well, in Benjamin. And so this is actually a halakha brought down um, that if we are to feed our pets, we should feed them before us. Now, um, th th that's kind of complicated because some of us may have our dog bowl or our cat bowl uh, out all day, right? My dog doesn't have a feeding time. His bowl's out all day, right? He can eat what he wants. Other people have an eating time. Um, this also is kind of interesting in terms of how it plays out with begging at the table, right? Um, you know, it might, it might, if we don't feed from the table, it might be nice to feed them after because, okay, they witness us eating, but then they get it. If you just fed them and then they beg, they don't really get anything else, right? So that's kind of interesting to unpack. It's interesting to note, however, that the above applies to eating, but when it comes to drinking, one may indeed drink before they give drink to one's animals. You take your dog for a walk, you're thirsty, and the dog is thirsty, you can have a drink before you give the dog water. I mean, most people have a bowl of water out all the time, right? But in theory, this is deduced from the fact that Rebecca poured water for Eliezer before for his camels, as, it, as we learn over there in Genesis 24. So, right, feed them first, but drink yourself first. Now, um, that, that's all things being equal. That's, what the, that's kind of what the tradition teaches. As soon as some factors are different, we may look at it differently. The Ramban, Nachmanides, teaches the, that the reason humans were not permitted to eat meat until after the flood was because of how similar we as humans are to animals. Oh, the Ramban, going back to Plato, the Ramban is not a, a rationalist like the Ramban, right? Maimonides is an Aristotelian. The Ramban is going to be a Platonist, right? He is going to be a mystic. And so he writes over here, meat was not permitted for human consumption until the time of the children of Noah, as our sages have explained, right? The Garden of Eden is vegan, right? The world is supposed to be vegan. And then after the flood, God permits the eating of meat. And, and so Ramban continues, and this goes according to the plain meaning of the Torah's text. The reason for it is mobile creatures have a certain spiritual attribute, which in this respect makes them similar to those who possess intellect, i.e. people. They are capable of looking after their welfare and their food, and they flee from pain and death. As the verse says, who knows that the spirit of the children of men is that which ascends on high, and the spirit of the beast is that which descends below to the earth. Yet when the animals sinned and all flesh had perverted its ways on the earth, right, that is leading up to the flood, we learn over there that not only humans murdered each other and robbed each other uh, relentlessly, but also humans became, uh, animals became cruel based upon kind of the, the, the rabbis teach based on human modeling. I don't know how influenced animals are by us, but that's kind of the rabbinic under, under, understanding. It was decreed upon them that they should die in the flood as well, right? Most animals were also killed in the flood. That's why you needed one of each to be brought into the ark. I say most because sea creatures, um, some sea creatures survived as the tale kind of goes. Um, there is kind of a rabbinic explanation that the water became boiling so that the sea creatures would be killed as well, except kind of a, a little area of water around the flood where two of each could also survive, right? Now we're getting a little creative here, <laughs> right? But there's some boiling water, so the sea creatures also, uh, you know, could die in the flood. Uh, then again, as you know, um, animals, uh, sea creatures only can survive at a very specific temperature, 
that's why some have to be deep and some are shallow and, and everything in between. And so once there's floods and the waters rise, temperatures evolve as well. So there's kind of something going on over there. Anyways, back to the Ramban. <laughs> but when on account of Noah, they were saved in order to maintain their species, mankind was given permission to slaughter and consume animals. Since after all, the animal kingdom owed their existence to them. Ah, ah, because of the ark, the humans built the ark. So the, the animals should be grateful, right? So now you can eat us. <laughs> Nevertheless, mankind was not given reign over the animal's soul, reign over the animal's body, but not the soul. For it was still forbidden to eat a limb off a living animal, a, a, a verminachai, right? Remember, there's seven Noahide laws, seven laws that are given to B'nai Noach. And one of them is you can't eat a limb off a living creature. And to consume blood, for it is blood that maintains life. All that was permitted was the flesh of the animal after it has died, but not the animal's soul itself. Right, And part of the animal's soul is considered to be the blood, right? That the, the, the soul of an animal is found in its blood. Okay, Rav Cook taught over here. There is no doubt in the mind of any enlightened thinker that the dominion spoken of in the Torah, they, humans, shall have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living being that moves on the earth, cannot refer to the dominion of a tyrannical ruler who treats both subjects and servants cruelly in order to satisfy his personal arbitrary desires. It is unthinkable that there should be an institution of servitude as ugly as this, stamped with an eternal seal in the world of a god who is good to all, whose compassion extends to all creatures, right? So Rav Cook says, yes, it says over there in Genesis that humans have dominion, but dominion doesn't mean that you're a tyrant that just um, tortures and does as they please with one's subjects, but rather the kings of human history should not be our model of, of reigning, but rather Hamelech, the, the God, the sovereign being should be a model and we should reign with compassionately, Rav Cook teaches. Picking up on the point about the consumption of meat being banned at the creation of humanity, Rav Cook continues to teach that this will be our destiny in the time to come as well. You might enjoy that nice picture over there of Tofurky, right? Um, <laughs> if you came for Thanksgiving in my house, you would enjoy a nice piece of Tofurky. It wouldn't look as dry as that. It would look nice and wet with gravy on it. Um, <laughs> so uh, Rav Cook continues over here. It is possible to conceive that a highly valued moral virtue, which had already existed as a part of the human legacy, should be lost forever, right? That God created a vegan world. It was already established that the very same permission to eat meat granted after the flood was not intended to be the actual practice for all time. For how is it possible for a lofty and enlightened moral condition once instituted to vanish as though it had never been, right? We want to go back to the Garden of Eden, right? The Messianic age should be a time of redemption, of nonviolence, where all life is free. Rav Cook continues, when humanity arrives at its goal of happiness and complete freedom, when it reaches that high peak of wholeness, which is the pure knowledge of God and the sanctification of life fulfilled according to its nature, then human beings will recognize their relationship with all the animals who are their companions in creation and how they should properly be able from the standpoint of pure morality to combine the standard of mercy with the standard of justice in particular relationship to the animals. 
and they will no longer be in need of extenuating concessions. Thus will humanity expand the limits of righteous behavior. Once the gates of righteousness are open, the light will continue to spread until within the parameters of human righteousness, the demand will arise, valid and enduring, to take counsel in seeking ways to improve the lot of these animals who exist at a lowly and humble level of creation in terms of their material and moral status. Then the dominion of which the Torah speaks will be established according to its purpose and its value as it was intended to be understood. And certainly when the noble vision is fulfilled, then humanity will no longer be able to in any way brandish its sword over animal life. They will dwell in safety together and savor the splendor of life. So while, while Rav Cook was mostly a vegetarian, he did believe that the prohibition of eating meat does not apply to all until the Messianic era. However, I would, so, so just want to remind us here. So Rav Cook does hold up this vegetarianism as an ideal, but he says, that's not for now, right? In our era, it's a different era. That's a messianic ideal. One might argue, however, that shortly passing after the passing of Rav Cook, with the massive scale up for cap capitalism and its influence upon factory farming, that we've entered a new era, that meat may not blanketly be prohibited today, given kind of what's happening in the factory farming industry, which many of us have seen videos about, but the rabbis never could have imagined the levels of suffering involved in the factory farming industry, experienced in kosher factory farms as well. They also never could have imagined that we'd have as many scientific studies as we do today that point to the detrimental impact on one's health that eating meat can have. Eating red meat and, and other forms of meat on a very regular basis, what that does for cardiac disease nor could they have imagined all the alternative food sources we have access to today to better fulfill our human nutritious needs, just how valuable fruits and vegetables are. It is easy to be kind to one's dog or cat. It is much harder, it turns out, to be compassionate to cows, chickens, and fish when we do not see them and we have become accustomed to eating them regularly. Whether we are vegan or vegetarian or reductarian, one who seeks to reduce their animal product intake, we can all advocate for better legislation that protects the most vulnerable among us. Indeed, on a qualitative and quantitative level, animals suffer the most on the planet today. The United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization estimates that about 80 billion land animals are slaughtered each year for, for food, which does not include the roughly 51 to 160 billion farmed fish. Um, and 99% of these are in the factory farming industry. That notion of this mom and pop field where the animals are free grazing is a fallacy. That's less than 1% of animals slaughtered each year, this, this cage free. Each of us must do all we can to ensure that animals are treated more humanely. We must do our part to reduce their suffering. The Torah expects, expects nothing less as part of our kindness practice. Treating animals with compassion is perhaps the ultimate measure of one's attribute of chesed. And ultimately, we, as we've seen, it can, it can in turn lead to improving our character as well. So let us live up to God's mandate of treating all God's creations and creatures with respect and compassion. Okay, friends, I would love to hear from you after I grab my drink. Okay, friends.
would love to hear from you. Hi, Lauren Blatt. Hi. Um, so my understanding was that Rav Cook ate chicken only on Yantif and, and Shabbat and no other time, which is one way to, to reduce. Other thing is, like, I've, I've been trying to live an ethical life that way. I gave up dairy because dairy cows are treated very, very badly, too. So, you know, I think you can live a good, nutritious diet with, uh, with not eating any animals. But I think that for people to wean themselves down, you know, you could try, start with like, you know, I gave up red meat long ago, but, you know, like chicken or turkey on Shabbat and yantif or that, then maybe just fish. Um, and there's so many dairy substitutes that there's no reason to eat dairy. Right. Anyways. Thank you, Lauren. On both points, very interesting. That is true about Rav Cook. Um, that's why I said mostly vegetarian, precisely for that reason, that he did have small amounts. Um, and so there, there was a movement started by a friend once called Mushi, meaning meat only on Shabbat and Yom Tov, um, called Mushi. So some people call themselves Mushi. Uh, <laughs> um, and yes, your point about dairy is also well taken, that indeed um, they kill the males and torture the females. And so the females are kept alive longer so that they can, um, um, and that's why we have, you know, kind of the veal over there. Um, and then we have the dairy industry, which is um, keeping the females along, uh, alive longer. And, um, and yeah, pretty, a pretty horrendous situation over there. So thank you. Now, I'm not going to weigh, weigh in, although I'm, I feel very compelled by the health studies, being that I'm not a medical expert or health expert, I will not weigh in on the, on the health dimensions of that. But um, I also find almond milk and soy milk and oat milk and rice milk and, and, and every puzzle milk to be uh, great alternatives. Hi, Aglaia, and then I leave. Okay, hi. All right, so to my first point though, just throwing this out there is that um, in my case, um, there is a mental health trigger when it comes to restricting food. So what, like um, like Lauren's saying though, like weaning yourself off of it though, well, and starting with also things like, um, I will not buy, I buy only vegan cosmetics and stuff like that. But for me, my case, so the mental health trigger is that I, if I think I'm gonna restrict food, I don't stop. And so it will just keep going and going. So I have to figure out different ways to wean myself off of it. Mm -hmm. Now, the other thing though is that I wanted to bring out, okay, I brought this out just because, well, I can, you allow me to. So anyway, um, okay, so here, that um, story, okay, so in Numbers, um, the angel of the Lord said to him, why have you beaten your ass these three times? It is I who came out as an adversary for the errand is obnoxious to me. And when the ass saw me, she shied away because of those three times. If she had not shied away from me, you are the one I should have killed. Now, what I thought of, I'm a little embarrassed to admit this, admit something about myself though, but when I, like reading that though, it reminds me of what a just like snobby, intellectually snobby kind of ridiculous person. I, like when I was a teenager, I was a complete and total intellectual snob. However, though, that, um, that verse actually, I think about it and I think to me, it speaks of anyone out there even the most like ridiculously dumb person they could be i'm not gonna even say what kind of their political views or whatever though but even like the most like i don't know just ignorant person whatever they can still teach you something like the donkey is like telling him like no i can see the angel you can't you're like on your way and you won't stop but i saw and i'm stopping 
So that's kind of, um, I guess, um, the way that I'm kind of looking at it, though, is that also learning to be kind to animals. Um, you have to think in terms of, well, how snobby are you? I hate to say it like this because I used to be the biggest intellectual snob, though, but like how... Yeah, I had to learn, you know, even though like some people, even the dumbest person on earth has a lot to teach you. Even an animal has to teach has a lot to teach you, stuff like that. Awesome. Love that. I love that. And so I'm gonna share um I'm gonna share two sources over here in the chat um that will move us uh along that direction for a moment. So it says over here in the Talmud of Erevin, I think this is a really fascinating Talmud Talmudic passage that if we had not received the Torah, we would have learned modesty from watching a cat, honesty from the ant, and fidelity from the dove. Of course, they're, they're, they're being a little bit, um, you know. Uh, yes, exactly. Um, but uh, this idea that actually the natural world can teach us a lot, and the notion of natural morality, and that we can learn from animals. And then over here in the Tales of the Hasidim, I think this is quoted by Buber, it says, after the Magid's death, his disciples came together and talked about the things he had done. When it was Rav Shneer Zalman's turn, he asked them, do you know why your master went to the pond every day at dawn and stayed there for a while before coming home again? They did not know why. Rabbi Zalman continued, he was learning the song with which the frogs praise God. It takes a very long time to learn that song. <laughs> this idea that we can learn how to praise God from the, from the frog. Or one of the other ones I love, is that the slaves leaving Egypt um, were not allowed to sing. And it wasn't, and they, they, they got to the other side of the sea and they wanted to sing their song of redemption, but they forgot how to sing. And so they looked up in the sky and they heard birds chirping. And the birds once again taught them how to sing. Um, so I love that idea. And I love what you brought with Bilam as well, this idea that, um, that he learns from the donkey. And so, so too, if we can extend that to animals, all the more so to humans that we consider to be, um, you know, perhaps some of the more, you know, less educated or, or less or well less well-informed around moral issues, um, we should say, you know, generously. And so um, so thank you for that. And a reminder that it says in Pirkei vote 4-1, famously, Ezehu Chacham, who is the wise one. Hello, made me call Adam, one who learns from all people. Um, so, and so indeed, this is a, a unique model of Jewish wisdom. The Jewish wise one is not one who's figured out X, Y, or Z, they got a doctorate, or they completed the Talmud. The wise one is one who has learned how to learn from everyone. Um, and that feels really, that feels really crucial here. And I, by the way, I just want to note that I feel that spirit in this group. I feel that spirit in this group that everyone is interested in learning from each other. So thank you for that. Now, um, so that's to your second point. On your first point, I, I just want to second your trigger alert. Your trigger alert, and I probably should have named it myself, around food. Food is very complicated um, for us, sometimes because of our, our um, how we were raised and our cultures and our traditions, sometimes because of dieting, sometimes because of um, um, eating disorders, um, sometimes because of other psychological desires that are fulfilled through our eating. And, and also the ethics of eating are, are quite complicated. So thank you for saying that. Yeah, hi, Eileen, over to you. Thanks. Um, I wanted to point out that psychologists and teachers know when a child does not respect an animal, that there is emotional problem with that child. 
Yes, thank you. Thank you. Um, and thank you for that private chat message also. <laughs> I see that. Um, yes, thank you for that. Eileen, um, yeah, do you want to say anything more about that? Um, I had direct experience with a boy who wrote an essay about how he'd love to shoot squirrels. Uh-huh, yeah. And I sent that down to the social worker. They didn't get to him in time. He came to school with mm. a loaded rifle a week oh. later to oh. shoot a teacher. Oh, and 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 please tell us that he didn't uh, uh, he didn't succeed. The teacher was absent oh, that okay. day. Okay, I'm, you know, I, I, nice. I, thank you, thank you for sharing that. And and I think that's right, actually. And here I think there was. I want to point out what I think was one rabbinic interpretation, which I think is flawed empirically. It may, I understood why it was believed at the time. But one of the explanations why meat was permitted after the flood, according to one rabbinic line of thought, was humans are viciously brutal and violent. And humans need an outlet for this desire for uh, bloodthirst, for violence. And so let them have the animals be an outlet for that need for bloodthirst. And so that's why one rabbinic teaching explains why meat was permitted after the flood, because, oh, we thought at the Garden of Eden, humans were going to be peaceful beings. Now we see they're not, they're violent. So let's teach them don't murder, but give them an outlet for violence on the animals. Now, I, I, I kind of see that thought. Maybe you were taught as a kid to go punch your pillow if you were mad. Don't punch your brother, punch a pillow. Maybe you were taught to go hit a tree with a bat rather than hit your sister or brother, right? And so give an outlet to that energy. But I think empirically, it's according to some things I've seen that that's wrong, actually the expression of an emotion oftentimes reinforces that emotion rather than releases it. Maybe you were taught as a kid, it's good to have a good cry. Give yourself a good cry, you're going to release your sadness. Well, it may be that an expression of sadness through crying might be healthy, but it might also deepen a sadness rather than release sadness. I don't know, right? It may be that punching things actually deepens our rage rather than releasing rage, right? That's an interesting question we can think about in our own lives. When we express an emotion, does it release it or deepen it, right? So over there, they thought that, and so too, like Eileen is saying, a child that is violent to animals, um, it, 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 we should be concerned that that violence will be torn towards other beings as well. I, I, there was a family member, and then over to Gary, a family member, a child that um, I remember as a kid had a BB gun, and he would shoot these birds and line up these birds and squirrels uh, along the sidewalk. And I remember thinking, even as a young kid, that this was a kid who had aggression issues. Um, this wasn't just a fun thing that was a healthy thing that a young kid did, as kids all, often did. He had aggression issues, and his desire to do that also was manifest in <laughs> some other behaviors. Okay, yes, over to you, Gary. Uh, good morning, everyone. Good morning. Well, I, I just want to make a comment, maybe not as deep as the one that we're presently on, but uh, I used to be an ag major, an animal science major in college, <laughs> and uh, I used to have, to, part of the course uh, in college, uh, I had to work in a slaughterhouse for a quarter, and uh, you can't convince me that uh, animals don't have some sense of what's going on inside the slaughterhouse, even getting them off the truck, 
uh, to line up to go in one by one in, into the into the slaughterhouse because uh, uh, if you've never experienced that, then I'm a, a pescatarian, I guess you would say. Uh, that uh, that's 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 pretty. Uh, uh, if you have any emotion, uh, uh, you see that, Be, and I don't care if it's cattle or sheep or or pigs. Uh, uh, we did slaughter chickens in this slaughterhouse, but you know, four-legged ones. It's 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 pretty gut-wrenching. Uh, so, which brings me to another topic in in slaughter that I like to just throw out there is that now we see the eastern some of these Eastern European countries that are no longer allowing uh, shkita. You know, they they're requiring their uh, kosher animals to be stunned. Uh, I personally didn't see a difference it's like it wasn't a kosher slaughterhouse being stunned or not being stunned. Uh, do you think that's more of an anti-Semitic thing that they're just using uh, as an excuse uh, to limit uh, you know, Jewish culture and, and tradition? Uh, and uh, I'll finish with one thing in memory of my mother. My mother always told us, you feed your animals first. And she'd get really upset of us and it'd make us stop eating to go feed it. We always had a dog. Uh, to feed our dog, and uh, you know, and she always would quote, you know, uh, Talmud says you, know, you feed your animals before you, you you feed yourself. So go feed your dog. So I'll leave it at that. <laughs> Very nice, awesome, right? That that's great. And you know, that, going back to that question of are 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 we as humans animals, and to what degree? You know, it's interesting. It's a derog it's derogatory. You say you animal. Right, yeah. <laughs> you, you, as if like you know, that's like the lowest form of our human expression would be to be animalistic, um, and um, but yes, this this I, I love that 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 existed in your home of feeding of feeding the animal first. Now to your second point um, around stunning, you know, as an animal welfare activist myself who is concerned about about animal treatments, and I am not an advocate for pre-stunning. But I am an advocate for post-stunning. Stunning meaning just before the animal slaughtered, um, but um, but rather stunning immediately after the animal has been slaughtered because they are not killed immediately. Um, however, I believe, even with my advocacy work, that the East, the the European advocacy for stunning, is largely driven by anti-Semitism. Mm -hmm. Yes, there are animal rights activists involved, but um, I really think if they want to go after um, animal cruelty, they should go after big ag factory farming slaughterhouses in Europe itself and not pick on the minorities of Muslims and, and Jews. Uh, the, the, the minorities are already at risk in, in Europe, not to mention the history they've had. And to pick on the minuscule amount that is emerging from halal and kashrut in Europe, I think is wrong, and they should pick their fight with the big ag. And so I have I have spoken out consistently against um, against those European movements, um, the, the, those calls for reform. Even though I am an advocate for post slaughter stunning, much more to talk about there if there's interest. But to go to your first point before we move on, um, we there's a lot of studies that show the relationship in slaughterhouses that of animal cruelty to worker cruelty. Um, that that slaughterhouses that are more likely to engage in some of the more horrific practices are also more likely to uh, to engage in such with the workers. We saw that in agri processors. Remember in Postville, Iowa, Rebushkins, yeah. 
mm-hmm. right? Temple Grandin, the um, who's known for her work on autism and is also known for her work on animal welfare, um, said it was some of the worst animal treatment she had seen in this kosher slaughterhouse because um, they were doing shackling and hoisting where they hold the animal upside down by the leg um, and other practices that many slaughterhouses don't engage in. And when I flew to Postville, Iowa to meet with the workers there at Agri, and I met with these 389 workers from Guatemala who were brought there by coyotes, um, I saw that they were paid under minimum wage, worked in hot, sweaty conditions, were often not given breaks, um, and it was really bad. It was really bad. And so we do see that there is a strong correlation between that. The last thing I'll say about that is that those of us who are concerned with the mass incarceration systems in America and how those systems have been built, we don't have to go back to Jeremy Bentham. Um, what was it called, Aglaia? Um, the system, um, his, his his work around looking at the prison system, Panopticon or... Do you recall, know what I'm talking about? Somebody now Google, I'm completely blanking on it. Let me look it up. <laughs> somebody, Google, somebody Google it. Jeremy Bentham and his work on prisons, and you'll find the work the work he, he does. Where and Bentham's interest over there is on how the mass incarceration system has been used to control minds and bodies, with constant surveillance. And um, if you look at the mass incarceration system and compare that to the factory farming industry, and kind of these mass industries of controlling controlling bodies, you, you'll see a, a bunch of parallels now. Yes, again. Panopticon. Panopticon. Okay, so I said it right. I just, it's been 20 years since I said the word. So anyways, thank you for that. So yes, hi. Uh, yes, uh, Rabbi Lerner. That's yes. the first day. I, I okay. keep myself muted because sometimes I make comments. Thank over you for doing people. that. Great. Uh, <laughs> what can I tell you? Uh, because I also functioned as a Rava Machshir and supervised uh, catering, I, I learned more than I ever wanted to know, much more than I ever wanted to know. And one of my subjects was to go to a uh, poultry slaughtering house to really see what's being done. Never should have gone. Never should have gone because I couldn't eat even chicken for weeks. What I saw was precisely what you just mentioned. Number one, the animal uh, care was less than acceptable to me. While in college, I ran the animal research lab and I was in charge of the animals. So we're talking rats, pigeons, monkeys, and whatever, feeding, cleaning, and maintaining. And I wanted to see how different the slaughterhouse would be. It was incredibly different. It was absolutely indifferent. Secondly, I saw something, and I share it with you as one observation and not an indictment of an industry. The shelch team were doing six and seven chickens a minute. There was no time for a bracha. There was no time to check the knife. They were under the gun to produce quantity, and there was literally no one checking uh, for any form of bedikah. So at that point, I realized, okay, another problem with the kosher industry and what we say to people. So in part, I don't totally denounce uh, regulations that look at what we do and say it's not so, I think we have to look at what we do and make it so. Beautiful. Okay, thank you so much um, for that. And I really appreciate all, all of what you had to share there. 
Um, and our gift to whoever is a daily meat eater here today is that we're not going to take you into that poultry farm. Um, actually, oh. our, real, our real gift is we're giving you an hour break from giving Tuesday emails. Um, <laughs> if you, you get about a thousand an hour, right? Um, uh. no, but what, what a great idea, right? I mean, I mean, if, to be as invested in Giving Tuesday as we are in Black Friday and Cyber Monday, right? <laughs> and then, and then uh, what, what do we call Wednesday? Happy Wednesday. It's all over. You know? <laughs> over <the home. laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so, so today is Giving Tuesday. And our gift is to you is that we're not going to take you into that, into that poultry farm. But yes, you're exactly right. And I want to remind us that, that Kashrut has been harmed. In this process, Kashrut has assimilated into this American factory farming ethos, where, um, in fact, um, we see what Rabbi Lerner shared, where um, that the authenticity of what this was supposed to be about, in many ways, has been diminished. Well, that's and your book. That's your book. Put in a pitch for your book, because it's an excellent, excellent you. summary. Oh, uh, you're very <laughs> good. Thank you so much. Um, I, thank you very much. So... Uh, yeah, I appreciate that. And, uh, and, and yeah, and I do just want to say there that um, uh, that this is really an opportunity to rethink about a Jewish food ethic uh, and to kind of evolve what, what Reb Zalman Shakti Shalom you wanted to do a long time ago, eco-kashrut, to rethink of how kashrut is a transformative vehicle that is in line with some of these values. I saw a hand go up. Let's see, who do we not hear from yet here? Sarah, Alex, Steve, Juan, Eddie, Cheryl, Ethan, Eric. Yeah, hi, Eddie. Um, yeah, hi. Um, I keep thinking about the differences in cultures uh, and how cultures view animals differently and um, consumption of meat. Um, by the time I was seven, I learned how to slaughter goats. Um, but it was like one goat every six months, like um, completely different view of, of the overall consumption of meat. Um, I remember one of the first things my my mom told me here is that Americans eat so much meat. Um, we looked at that for breakfast, there was meat for lunch, there was meat and for dinner, there was meat. Whereas in my family, we had meat like on a Sunday. Um, there was like so overly um, the idea of like hyper consumption of meat that was so different in, in, in the system here that my mom really uh, told us that like was completely different. And, um, the respect that I was taught on, on how to respect the animal before I was taught how to um, how to dispose of, of the animal and the meat was way different than what we see in like factories. Um, it was it was a connection with the meat. When I first hunted with my uncles, we like sat together and gave thanks to what we were um, to like give thanks to everything we were doing. And we we really respected the animal and we used every single bit of of the deer that we we got. Every single bit of it was used to feed my family from every part of the body was used. There was no no byproduct that was not used. Um, and I, I just don't understand now the, the system in the United States of overconsumption that results in the almost dehumanization of animals and the mistreatment and it, it turns into a product rather than a being. Thanks, Eddie. Thanks for sharing that um, and, and that cultural uh, difference. And I'd be interested to hear from Juan about Colombia and what if there's any any difference there or anyone else from another country if they're interested in sharing um, as well. Uh, yo, Juan, you're unmuted. 
Yes. No, uh, no difference. Oh, okay. But I, oh, I do, but I do think the the conditions of the kosher industry worldwide are appalling, and uh, we have <clears throat> we have one of the few people who started thinking about these type of ecological things and about how the treatment of animals um, should be done many many years before this was hip. Uh, and uh, and the people that that have gone to these places uh, uh, realize uh, that uh, that uh, the treatment of, of these animals are are not what they should be. Thank you for that. By the way, which uh, which team is on your jersey today? Today is Manchester United. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Anything but Iran, which plays in. Uh, in. <laughs> One minute, one hour and five minutes. <laughs> yes, I ran. Um, especially, yeah, lots to say there. I'm not going to go there. Okay, thank you for that one. Thank you. Hi, Sarah. Hello. So, um, there have been so many interesting things said today. Uh, going back to, let's go back to the ark first, because that one fascinated me. And I wondered if part of feeling as if they needed to eat meat wasn't so much about the inherent nature of people's violence as much as what else was there to eat for the year and a half or so, two years that they they lived on that ark, all they could eat were animals. So it was custom, it was customary that this was the form of nourishment and nutrition and they needed to go back to something that may have been agrarian. And that whole, the whole planet was regrowing so that was another piece of what needed to come into being. That's at least how I'd like to see that piece. Um, as far as the medical piece, I can say as a physician that indeed all we see from animal consumption, from non-vegan uh, consumption is incredible amounts of inflammation throughout the body, innumerable numbers of disease states, and one of the best sources for looking towards changing diet and for the medical information around it comes from the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine, PCRM, that also looks at medical schools and the medical community and trying to make them stop using animals for research and the cruelty that has been instilled in physicians needing to kill animals for their education. There are much better alternatives. That's that piece. Um, I'm fascinated by the notion of our different cultural experiences. Uh, and I know that my father, who was starving in First World War in Poland in his little shtetl, living in a, a hole in the ground, basically, all he could ever imagine was the idea of having food. And his father was a kosher butcher. And his idea that when he became a wealthy man, all he wanted was steak every night. And so it was imposed on us. My brother and I both gave up meat uh, in our late teens. And uh, since then, my confirmed notion of not 
eating other sentient beings really came from the Buddha who implored us not to eat other sentient beings and accepted that there are ways in which for medical reasons, we may need something from animals. So if it was the source of insulin before we could do that chemically, um, we could turn to our animal friends and ask for them to help us to improve our health. B12 is another one of those things that we can't get with our vegan diet. And so we have to find another source. The other, I guess, last piece that struck me is that, you know, there but for little bits and pieces of proteins, we are our animals. We are, we are no different. The, our genetic structure we've proven is so similar to all of our animal friends that to imagine that we are so superior is comical and sad and I'm complete. <laughs> Very good, Sarah. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for sharing. By the way, I'm, I'm reminded of, um, you know, there there is a, 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 a an idea in Kashrut called Ra'ui Lakelev. Is is it fitting for a dog? And so there was there was a class with Rabbi Soloveitchik on Kashrut, on Pesach, and what you need for Pesach. And someone said, Rabbi, Rabbi, is is toothpaste kosher for Passover? Do I need a special toothpaste for that's kosher the Pesach? And he says, uh, he says, uh, um, it's not Ra'ui Lakela, meaning it's, it's a dog wouldn't eat the toothpaste. So it's okay, you, know, you, can, you can use the toothpaste. Um, and so the next day, the student came back to class and said, Rabbi, Rabbi, I put the, I, last night I put the toothpaste on the ground for my dog, and my dog ate the toothpaste. And, <laughs> and, and Rabbi Soloveitchik says, your dog is Meshuggah, right? Which is, which is funny because what he's saying is he doesn't believe in empiricism. He believes in kind of a legal formalism that it doesn't matter what your dog did. I believe dogs don't eat toothpaste, right? And so are we dogs? Are dogs different? Interesting that in Kashrut, is it fitting for a dog becomes part of the question for us as well. Friends, next week in our kindness series, we're going to look at walking humbly, walking humbly, how to live with humility. And I, I think we'll have a lot to do over there. And um, I wish everyone a great day, not only a meaningful day, and go Manchester, um, but also um, a day that um, we find opportunities for kindness that we plan to do already, and maybe some opportunities for kindness to ourselves and to others that we didn't already plan to do today. And after all, it is Giving Tuesday. Have a great day. Bye-bye.